BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm former double agent and Newsweek editor-at-large, Naveed Jamali, and you're listening to Declassified, brought to you by Newsweek. Declassified is an exploration of what it means to be secure and of the people all over the world who are quietly working to keep us safe. In my career in the intelligence community, I served as a double agent and as an intelligence officer. My goal is to help explain the things that you can see, the proverbial iceberg above the waterline, and let you know what is below it. Quoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. June 9th, 2022 was the first time the public in a primetime public hearing heard the evidence that the House has gathered on the January 6th insurrection. And now, even if you've watched the events of January 6th, 2021 unfold in real time, as so many of us did, this hearing was jarring. The events of that day were somehow more dramatic, more violent, and closer to a catastrophe than I think any of us actually even realized. Now, there's so much to say about the evidence the House committee has shared. From on-the-ground video to the testimony of former AG Bill Barr and Ivanka Trump. And there's no better person to dissect all of it than retired Lieutenant General Russell Honore. You may remember him as the Raging Cajun, a decorated military leader who coordinated relief efforts after Hurricane Katrina. But the week after the insurrection attempt, Speaker Pelosi appointed Honore to lead the first review of Capitol Police operation. And as it turns out, failures on January 6th. General Honoré is very blunt about who failed who and when on that day. But to understand that, you'll need to hear it from him. Well, it was like a case of PTSD for me because I, I was glued to the television from about 10 o'clock central that morning through about 6 o'clock that night. I, I didn't leave. I watched the whole thing live. Uh, and then subsequently... Three weeks later, uh, we go up and start an investigation of, uh, for the uh, House on what happened. And it's a replay uh, of living a nightmare, watching this happen in our country. So it just doesn't happen in America. Uh, the whole concept of overthrowing an election is a coup. The planning of it is a form of sedition. And to see... Uh, having served in the Pentagon as the J uh, three uh, on the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, in charge of military support to civil authorities, I knew uh, the response options that the federal government had to protect uh, our federal government inside Washington, and, and it wasn't working. I said, "Where is the FBI?" Uh, teams? Where are the DHS teams? Where is the National Guard? What in the hell is going on? Uh, it was like a living nightmare because I knew we were better than that. It had to be a failure of, of leadership and complicity in many parts of the government. How can we have one 
Secret Service team protecting the president, another one protecting the vice president, and there's threats against the vice president, and there's not more Secret Service uh, and FBI showing up. They don't have to be invited to come to the Capitol uh, and protect the Capitol. It was, I felt sorry for those officers because it shouldn't have happened. Uh, shortly afterwards, the police chief of the Capitol resigned, the sergeant at arm in the Senate resigned, and the sergeant at arm in the House resigned. They all should have been fired and thoroughly investigated because this shouldn't have happened. The FBI should not have been surprised. That's their job. Uh, when you have that many people in the Capitol, uh, and I know these operation plans, we had a failure of government led by someone who wanted to overthrow the government, and that was the President of the United States. Uh, you know, very, very strong words, sir. And uh, But I want to separate, because you're right, there's... There's two things here. One is let's just call it what it is, incompetence, right? You know, you're, when you say, where was the FBI? This is a question of, I imagine that there are p place, things in place that act automatically that don't require approval or orders. They're, they're pre-planned. They've got the authority to operate without waiting for anything. That's one question. And I think it's a very valid one. But the second one is the larger question, right? Which is this idea that in my opinion, this wasn't just the president of the United States uh, being incompetent and avoiding issuing orders because of incompetence or negligence, right? I believe that he was doing so because, you know, he was in large part directing this, that this was something that he saw as beneficial to him, that he wanted to interrupt the, you know, democratic process of swearing in the next president to whom he lost. What do you say to that part? I mean, we can, I want to talk about the incompetence and, and the planning and, and the failure in some areas, but what do you say about, in your years of service, can you ever imagine a president not just shirking from his duty, but actually really egging on and, and contributing, and in fact, if not directing, uh, the you know, stopping of a democratic process? What do you say to that? Oh, it's my firm belief from the day I watched the president as an observer sitting in front of a big TV, and they showed it on TV on one six of him watching this like he's watching the football game, that he directed this. Uh, his will was being imposed on the Congress of the United States, and that will was being executed by the mob that he directed, helped orchestrate, helped resource, uh, and motivated them to do what they did. This was a directed attack on the Capitol, enabled by... Uh, domestic terrorists, uh, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and a willing crowd who believed in the propaganda that the election was stolen. So he had the people who were intent on breaking in the Capitol. Uh, we had a police force in Washington, in the Capitol, uh, and in the House. Uh, in the Congress, an interagency that played deaf to the fact that that many people were on the mall and walking toward the Capitol. This, this with cameras all over the uh, Capitol area, they could see what was happening. They, all they had to do was watch the news. It was being shown live, and they failed to respond. If had not been for the immediate response of the Metropolitan Police, that would have turned out to be a lot worse situation than what we saw because we saw the threats replayed last night to hang the vice president, to go after the Speaker of the House, and anybody that they could find. They had the intent not only to seize the ballots, but to... Uh, it disabled the office of the vice president of the United States. They had intentions to do harm, and they displayed that by the damage they'd done and the combat 
tactics that they use against the Capitol Police who were overmatched. Uh, the Capitol Police had about 800 officers of 1,800 uniform officers on duty. Uh, during our investigation, we went through this, why more officers weren't there. It's either complicit or incompetent. And I think it's a part of both that the assumption that this would be a friendly crowd. But once watching the, the attitudes and the speech from the president, Mo Brooks and Julie Guiani, I mean, there should have been federal officers out there listening or watching it on television. I don't know what the hell they were doing. The government failed that day and allowed President Trump to direct his mob to go attack the Capitol. A lot of complicit behavior. You know, sir, I, I think about, you know, for me, I joined the military after 9-11. I, I was part of that generation that saw the changes that swept the military literally overnight. And one of the biggest, biggest, biggest things that we learned, there's two major lessons that we learned from 9-11. One is a breakdown in intelligence and the ability and the, the need to share intelligence cross agency to not stovepipe things. But the other thing, the second thing is, as we, you know, as you vividly remember from uh, with, with uh, the President Bush, who was flying on Air Force One and they couldn't talk to the press, he couldn't talk to the country, he had to land, was the fact that if, if leadership was decapitated, the government had to function. You know, your point, I think, is spot on. I want to talk about the intelligence failure, but first I want to ask, you know, as a government, as a military, as, you know, we've always pushed this idea of continuity of government. And in this case, I... Granted, the president's, you know, he was, I think personally, he was complicit, but if nothing else, he was absconding his duty, right? There was not a president acting in those moments. And it feels like since 9-11 and certainly since the Cold War, we've, we've drilled, we've put plans in place for the continuity of government. Do you think that this was, I mean, should we be worried from a national security perspective that this shows the weakness, you know, of a decapitating event, that if government can't stop you know, essentially a seditious act um, because the president is incapacitated or, or is failing to discharge his duties. Is that something that we should be as Americans concerned about from a national security standpoint? Well, I, I think we heard a glimpse last night that in the absence of the, of the president directing resources or directing the mob to stop, that the vice president has started issuing orders to uh, the Pentagon, and to the FBI, to DHS. In the middle of the riot, the vice president started to issue orders. And that's when we saw the clip that Meadows uh, informed the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff that the president's still in charge. Let's not create a narrative that the vice president is issuing orders. I think at that point in time, for that short period of time that has been reconstructed from the hearing last night, that the vice president was doing things that the president should have been doing, while the president was uh, continuing to watch his mom execute the plan that they had discussed as planned out with him and his kitchen cabinet of General Flynn, uh, Navarro, um, and uh, the lawyers and around him that had been advising him on how to overthrow the government. So, it, so it I have was, to, I, can I just, I just want to interject one, because I, I think this is just your take. Do you think in those moments that Vice President Pence was in fact acting um, in the absence of President Trump issuing orders? Yes, he had an Al Haig moment. I'm in charge. I mean, that is... <sighs> and he started to direct things to happen. While he himself was held up in the basement of the Capitol around his uh, caravan, his armored cars, with Secret Service protecting him. Uh, I think it was the intent that if the vice president escaped, uh, or was uh, did a hasty retreat that that would give 
the uh, the mob uh, even more uh, incentive to cause more destructions. And it had not been for the civil servants in the Capitol who took the votes away, we would have seen a real show. Because if they had gotten a hold of those votes, they would have burned them. Jesus. Thereby causing a constitutional crisis. And what do we do now? We were plowing ground we had not plowed before in America because our systems were based on honest trust, belief in the Constitution. Uh, and this was a, a plan that was played out that we had not anyone ever foreseen that we have a president with a White House staff around him enabling an attack on the Capitol. It was akin to a military operation. When we saw this unfold again last night, it was sequential like a military operation. Before the president started talking, the advance guard went forward. That was the Proud Boys as documented. They challenged the initial line of defense, which as we saw was one officer behind bike racks. Into uh, itself is an embarrassment for the significance, the centerpiece of power and democracy in the world, the capital, to only have bike racks as a line. But those bike racks have, 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 have been a symbol, don't cross the line. They overwhelmed the initial line in advance. The advance guard kept moving until the main body, which was the second echelon, which included many of the people from the Capitol. In the meantime, the advance guard had disrupted the first and second line defense of the Capitol. And by the time the main body got there, the Capitol was penetrated uh, by breaking windows and going inside the Capitol. And one might ask, why didn't the Capitol Police shoot? And in our investigation, uh, some would say the police showed a lot of restraint. But there are many who compare this would happen. What happened if this was a Black Lives Matter? Would they not shoot? They well, what gave, can I ask? What, what do you think yeah. about that? I mean, because it, it's it, looking at the video, you're absolutely right. It was shocking to me. And I'm not, you know, I'm not minimizing what those officers suffered. I mean, it was, it was horrible, and right. horrible violence, but why didn't they shoot? Why do you think that there was such restraint? Well, there's a police doctrine. We don't shoot people for breaking and entering. Right. And we don't shoot people doing demonstration, but we see it happen across the country all the time where people are shot during demonstrations. And then the Capitol Police were not prepared with the uh, non-lethal weapons, but it's no way in hell that those shouldn't have been available when we went in and did the inventory of it. Much of it was in the wrong place. Much of the ammunition had been outdated. So you got a combination of not having enough police and incompetence and not doing the basics uh, on that date, have it not been for the line officers who helped as much as they could to stand their ground. But this idea of allowing people to break into your house is unconscionable, even though they revere the idea of expressing your First Amendment. This went way beyond First Amendment when the first assault on a police happened. Well, well, like you said, sir, I mean, this, to me, this is clearly, uh, this was an operation. You know, they were bringing weapons, they were leaving them in Virginia, they were coordinating amongst groups, they had stacks, for God's sakes. I mean, you could see it, just an untrained novice, you could watch and see the, you know, the, the Oath Keepers, those two stacks going into the Capitol. You know, the thing about, that, that has also struck me, and what you're saying is that D.C., it's, it's a major city, it has, um, it also has some of the highest number per capita of police officers. It's uh, 547 per 100,000 residents as of 2020. 
you know, you talk about outdated ammunition. You talk about the things that they have and incompetence. Is this? And I don't want to put all the blame at, lay it on the feet of the of the of the police officers. But no, that's not the intent. No. Is 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 there? You know, is this? This is clearly in part a failure, right? A failure to realize the potential. I don't think the police were expecting this. So I guess it's a two-part question, sir. How much do you think of this is an intelligence failure, an inability? You know, part of intelligence is not just collecting it. If you can't communicate it, communicate it back to decision makers, that in my book as a former intelligence officer is a failure, right? If you don't communicate that intelligence, that threat, that warning, you know, and to a decision maker, what good is that intelligence? So how much of this is an, a failure of intelligence? How much of this is a failure of you know, planning, training, being prepared, you know, where do you lay that, that failure? And what, more importantly, what can be done? Well, I think the, the, uh, if you looked out at the crowd, you saw the American flags, but you even saw rebel flags and you saw the Trump flags. I, I think they perceived these as being, uh, not being domestic terrorism, but an enthusiastic, crowd of white people and they their own biases i can tell you if this was an enthusiastic crowd of uh of uh of people of foreign descent or black and brown people uh their response may have been a hell of a lot different and i'm just speculating here based on what we see around the country in a response we had even the governor of Maryland ready to send his National Guard in, but they weren't asked for. The question is, why did he wait? He could have sent him in. Well, why do you think that is? I mean, let's follow that through. Well, there were people in the Pentagon who are going by this script that the mayor has to request through the Pentagon, through the Secretary of the Army, through the Secretary of Defense, to the President, to approve the Guard, which is bullshit. That's why the National Guard is there. In a duress, in extreme situation, if they're available, they should have been deployed. It was like amateur hour in the Pentagon. Do, do you Wanted think- to know what the plan was for using the National Guard. That's bullshit. Do you think it's in part? So clearly there's a level of incompetence. There's uh, a level of, I don't think that anyone was prepared clearly for this type of uh, event, but then there's another part, you know, which to me is what you're saying. You know, I covered um, the protests in Seattle quite a bit. Uh, I was there with the chop. And one of the things that always struck me is that you've had certain groups that during, during Trump, you know, the proud boys, and these, a lot of, a lot of these groups come from the West coast um, that, they're, you know, you say they're against anti, Antifa, and indeed you saw, I believe it was yeah. the Proud Boys saying, you know, F- Antifa, uh, before they went in, they made their charge. Um, but one of the things that the police, and talking to police, is that they viewed these groups as being pro-police, being, you know, Blue Lives Matter. And so they, they were far more sympathetic, uh, not sympathetic necessarily, I don't want to say they're sympathetic to the racism or sympathetic to the white nationalism, but they found that those they they when they would come to protest between Antifa and and, and other you know segments um, and and like the Proud Boys, the Proud Boys were far more compliant with the police, and so I think part of this, sir, and, I, and I'm curious what you feel about this, is that there is in a time when policing, let's be honest, and, and I don't mean to disparage every police officer, but it's a tough job, and certainly taking you know the reputation of police officers taking a beating, and so when they see this group that is you know advocating for policing and, and, you know, blue lives matter and all that. And, and look, and as we saw, a lot of the people arrested were either former police officers, some were former active, you know, military. There's, do you think that the fact that there was a sympathetic belief that these groups were pro police, that they would be compliant and perhaps that was a bias that led them to sort of turn down their preparations for, you know, and, and not consider this could turn, violent is that is yeah. that the highest part of the reason i think that was one of the uh downfalls of the capitol police board they they assumed is uh based on what you just said in my assessment they fell into this well 
these people certainly wouldn't attack the Capitol. I mean, they're a bunch of white people, Trump supporters. They are Blue Lives Matters. They are, they are patriots. They would not attack the Capitol. And then they didn't bring additional officers on. They didn't keep the day ship on. They didn't bring the night ship on uh, in a timely manner. This is, they became complicit in the idea uh, and failed to even use the intelligence that was gathered. How does the FBI director don't know of threats that's coming toward the Capitol? Is that incompetence or is it complicit? Well, what, do you think? what do you think? I mean, uh, is it? I don't is know. It, that's why they're doing the investigation. Yeah. Because I don't, you know, this is pure speculation. Sure. But how do they not know? I mean, we've got the Washington field office of the FBI and a joint terrorism center that operate 24-7. The problem is they're focused on foreign terrorists. That's right. They're focused on domestic terrorism. We still don't have a domestic terrorism law in America. And during my investigation, uh, which was focused on security, not this particular point, but I asked a senior person in the Capitol, why don't we have a domestic terrorism law? He said, well, you know, we've got a good foreign terrorism law that chased down people with bad intent. We don't have a domestic terrorism law. And I said, why don't we have one? And this was in his response, domestic terrorist vote. There's, of course, that's true. There's also another uh, stickly, sticky part of this. And I can say this as, you know, as, again, as a former intelligence officer, I, I was drilled this over and over again, executive order 12333. And that is, you know, U.S. intelligence cannot collect on U.S. persons. And that includes a pretty wide scattershot. And the reason for that is we have a constitution, right? We, you know, we saw with Trump, Russia, uh, right. people complained about, oh, f- spying on U.S. Per- no, we don't do that. You know, the CIA, DHS, the FBI, CIA, f- intelligence, the intelligence community does not spy on U.S. persons. If they're listening to a phone call from Syria and that person in Syria calls someone in the U.S., they turn over to the FBI and they get a warrant. I mean, it's just, these are very, but this is a problem. You're right, because if I were to write a check to, let's say, quote unquote, ISIS, that is uh, providing material support to a, to a terrorist organization, identify terrorist. I can be charged. I can be arrested. I can prosecute, thrown in jail. If I write a check to the Ku Klux Klan, guess what? That's, that's a tax deduction. <laughs> that's, that's not even, you know, and, and you're, but the Ku Klux Klan and, or the Proud Boys or, or, you know, the Oath Keepers, this is the problem. I don't want to say it's a problem, but it is, it is the balancing of a constitution and the rights and the, and the freedom of, you know, First Amendment and others. Um, but clearly, these are, these are groups that act, as you said, they're terrorists, right? Their goal is to create political change. They're a minority. They, they seek to use violence to create political change. That is terrorism. That is the absolute definition of terrorism. So, Absolutely. you know, and, and look, in a practical term, you're right. Like, I've dealt with the FBI. You, you go, you know, you go to their uh, every, um, you know, uh, counter-terrorist task force that every every state has and every FBI you know field office has. Guess what? The entire thing is focused on foreign terrorism. There's like one person, one agent, <laughs> maybe who does domestic terrorism. It's it's clearly, sir. Um, I'm wondering what you found about this and what you're questioning. But it's clearly domestic terrorism has never been a priority for DHS, for ATF, for the FBI. It just hasn't been, especially since since 9-11. Do, do you think that that's true? Is part of this a political... Look, we have a constitution, but listen, you can throw money behind something and say, make this a priority. And you can put a lot of smart people in a room and figure this out. Well, you know, to me, that hasn't been done. I'm just wondering if, if you've seen any changes, any movement to, to prioritize domestic terrorism amongst law enforcement. Well, I think you get back to the point, unless we do what Grant did, the Ku Klux Klan Act, (laughs) where he uh, sent the army in to take the Klan down, which was a form of domestic terrorism. Uh, And he did that successfully for a while, then uh, got tired of it and, and moved away from it. That if we don't go after domestic terrorism, it metastasized. And with the 
use of the internet, they have a way of collaborating on these dark sites, if I may use that word, uh, in a way that gives them ability to do command and control, collaborate, and mass uh, groups of people where they want. And that has to be monitored. And right now, the strength of our democracy is the First Amendment, which give people a right to say things. And because of the strength of the First Amendment and the recognition of that, without a domestic terrorism law that allow the interagency to monitor, actively monitor these sites, because these people were actually giving orders and collaborating in open source websites. And even some of them posting in their intentions on Facebook. And the dilemma we spoke of earlier are they just practicing their First Amendment right or their intentions here to overthrow the government. And we saw that even when the Norfolk Field Office sent to the Ip in Washington, God knows what they were doing. I don't know what they were doing that thing. They must have, between breakfast and lunch, they must have, all the thing they did was figure out where they were going to lunch. They were asleep at the wheel. <laughs> the Washington office of the FBI field office and the Secret Service. What do you think about, um, you know, you talk, we, we did talk about how there was, they didn't, they didn't shoot anyone, with one, of course, exception, Ashley Babbitt. And you know, uh, for those who support the Proud Boys and, and say the, insur- you know, the insurrection, the violent attack on our capital and our democracy was legitimate, they, they lift Ashley Babbitt up as sort of this martyr who was unjustly um, shot and killed. W- what can you say about that? I mean, to me, it seems like there, you know, there was a lot less violence against these people invading the Capitol. But what do you say about Ashley Babbitt? She's a terrorist with the intent to overthrow the government. Uh, there are some in observation have said, if we ended up with 40 or 50 uh, of the mob shot, injured, or killed that day, then we as a nation and as a government would be defending, why did we shoot protesters? in the capital of the United States where we revere the First Amendment for people to speak. But this went from a protest to an armed insurrection. And the government didn't respond to the warnings, to the indications, and to the actual actions till almost four hours later when they authorized the National Guard. This is ridiculous. And had it not been for the D.C. police, things would have been a lot worse that day. But that's the challenge we have when we don't have a domestic terrorism law to monitor these groups, infiltrate these groups, because we're not allowed to do that unless there is a threat that is uh, that the FBI or some informant inform them of that they're going to do harm. That is the only way uh, that they pick these people up who have the intentions to do harm because we're not actively monitoring. We're not infiltrating. We're not going in and taking them down. Do, do you the think the problem was still out there as an organization? Do you think that even with the arrests of you know, the head of the Proud Boys um, and, and other groups, do you think these groups still still are, they have a command and control, they still have leadership, they still have funding, they're still well-organized, and most importantly, do they still constitute a threat? Have they been neutralized? They, uh, you could take the leader out, but the idea is still there. It's been implanted in the American culture inside our neighborhoods, inside our states, inside our parishes, counties, and cities. Uh, They're still there because we have not infiltrated them, figured out who they are, 
because they're sworn uh, to enforce the concept of the big lie. And that is then reinforced by propaganda news from Fox News and other stations and Steve Bannon. Oh, Steve Bannon is still on air. That guy's a freaking terrorist. Jeez. His intent is to overthrow the goddamn government. And we keep uh, hiding behind the fact that he has the First Amendment right to get on the radio uh, daily and spew uh, terrorist-type propaganda to his listeners. This is ridiculous. This guy has stated his intent was to deconstruct the government of the United States. And he's still walking free. They arrested him. And then we said, well, as a citizen, he's got the right to uh, post bond until his hearing. That's something that should have been locked up forever. That man is dangerous. So you think that these, well, then I got to ask the big question. You know, the ringleader behind this is Trump. Do you think he should face criminal legal consequences for this? Absolutely. And as they say, the, you know, the wheels of justice are slow and the Garland AG office is slower. Uh, and they continue to edge that way. And I hope this hearing will motivate them to move uh, at a more speed and deliberate because we got two things coming up in this country. We got fall elections, which there's a, the Trump uh, uh, super mega crowd is intent on winning at the ballot box because of the other political issues we have in the country with uh, inflation, the war going on, the pandemic, gas prices. And it's a deliberate plan now in some states to deny people the right to vote. And there are people getting elected to office who uh, is listening to the Trump propaganda that the election was stolen. And they plan on stealing it the next time by some of the procedures some states have put in that deny people the right to vote. In Georgia, you can't give somebody a bottle of water standing in a line to vote. What kind of shit is that? I mean, that's the kind of shit where you want to make sure people don't stand in line to vote. I mean, that's the obvious answer to me. Um, you know, the one cast of character that we haven't talked about and that was mentioned sort of in passing last night, and you've talked about him, is, uh, you know, a fellow general, uh, Michael Flynn. Um, I cannot think of someone who is, represents, you know, probably some of the most dangerous. I mean, he was, the, he could have been the national security advisor and God knows what that would have done. He was. <laughs> I mean, right. He could have been the national security. I should correct. You're right. She could have been the national security advisor for longer. <laughs> um, and God knows what he would have done. Sir, I have to ask as a general, as you know, there is this flag officer club, you know, you, it is a small community. What do people say about Michael? I mean, Michael Flynn, why was, I mean, he's crazy. Clearly there's something, there's something not right there. And I've heard generals, other flag officers talk to me off the record privately and say, you know, Naveed, we've, we've all often felt that there was something wrong with him. What do you, what do you say about Michael Flynn? What should happen to him? How come, you know, you talk about Bannon, but how come Flynn is allowed to sort of remain free and sort of clearly be behind, you know, this, this movement? Well, let me just tell you, uh, Flynn was on his way to justice and President Trump gave him a pardon. Of course. I, I mean, I'm, prior, but to that, prior to that, uh, Flynn had been uh, relieved of his job uh, in, uh, I want to say he was well, he was he was charged lying to the FBI, and he, I think he resigned. Right. But right, you know, he he's still, as far as I know, he's still collecting his pension. 
Um, and you know, and I'm I, I'm very sympathetic to the problem with pensions, and is that it it, it impacts more than just uh, you know your families and children and things like that. So you know, I, I I'm always hesitant to punish a family for the sins of you know one person. But sir, it happens a, every day. It, it does. It does. You're hundred percent right. More people uh, every day in America. So but what he has got past. Should he be allowed to keep his pension, sir? I mean, you know, as a that, retired he need, to be, he need to be brought to justice. Uh, under the UCMG, as a retired general, you are still subject to the UCMG. Let me tell you a quick story. Uh, the Puerto Rico hurricane happened. And uh, I was doing some interviews. Uh, and uh, around that time, uh, I made a comment about the uh, president uh, had made a statement that during that period about SOB football players and that stayed in the back of my mind that he would refer to citizens that way as he pushed his mega propaganda hugging the flag. Then Puerto Rico came around and I had done an interview, was doing an interview in San Juan and uh, in a previous interview, I'd referred to the SOB in the big blue plane. <laughs> I mean, people could figure out who that was. Uh, and on a Saturday morning in Puerto Rico, and the interview opened with the president at a golf course while the people in Puerto Rico were waiting on assistance. It took the White House seven days to appoint a general to be in charge in Puerto Rico. I beat that general to Puerto Rico. I went in on the Delta jet. And that morning, they interviewed the president and he said, well, the problem is the Puerto Rican government, they're bad, blah, 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 the mayor, St. Juan, blah, 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 don't like him, blah, blah, blah. Then they went to the mayor of St. Juan who said, all we want is help. We want help to help our people. Uh, then they came to me and uh, I had gotten some coaching from the Pentagon. Hey, stay away from the president. Don't be making comments. You're, you're held accountable as a retired officer. Don't be making comments from the president. I said, okay, yeah, I wish you had told me that yesterday. <laughs> and that morning I helped my fire and I answered this way when the reporter asked me what were my thoughts on what the president said about the mayor and what the mayor uh, requests to the president is you know the, 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 the response equal to the task and my response was uh, I hope the president have a good day playing golf because I know the mayor of Puerto Rico, of San Juan, slept on a cot last night and is trying to find resources for a people. And that got a big ha. Well, some retired guy out of Virginia <clears throat> pulled the statue of the UCMG, sent it to the Army. The Army opened an IG investigation of Russell Honore. Good Lord and sent me a letter reminding me of my responsibility uh, of the UCMG not to uh, overspeak on areas of my oath and said, oh, by the way, uh, this investigation is being closed, but it will be put in your file in the event you are ever reviewed for future positions in the government. Can you believe that? Shit? 
that is <laughs> just, I, I just need to, I need to wrap my head around this because I was a you know I was active reservist when I was an MSNBC um, analyst and I, I had all sorts of problems with people writing my command you know it was it was nasty people trying to get my security clearance pulled and I was just you know I was a, I was a junior officer I was not a retired lieutenant general so you're saying sir that someone took your comments sent it to the IG found the UCMJ clause that and and the IG reviewed it even though because the, the the standard for an investigation is it, the bar is so low you could trip over it right. and even though it was unfounded they they put you know, I don't know if it's a page 13 or something similar. They put essentially for those who aren't in the military, they put something in your permanent file. So if you're ever appointed or reviewed to be a, a, for a Senate confirmed or an appointed position in federal or state government, that will be in your file for, you know, that'll be because that, file. That those words, the guy, this SOB in the big blue plane. So. Uh, sir, if I may, the, the, the point I think you're making here, and I think it's an important one, is that the standard you were held to, sir, because you spoke out against Trump, is not the standard that Michael Flynn, who admittedly was convicted and then pardoned, which, by the way, as I understand, I'm not a lawyer, but when you're pardoned, you admit guilt. <laughs> um, yeah. So, if I may, do you think that the standard was completely unequal? Absolutely. But you had a complicit Pentagon then, too. You know, people who were uh, doing what the president told them and imposing his will. Do you, do you think the president was part of this or was it just his, his, you know, his underlings or minions? No, I mean, it's using the power of the, uh, the White House to impose their will on people, to shut me down. And that was, you know, in that regard sir january 6th i think was a culmination of a of a president who used i mean whether it was enriching his family or himself or using um the position of the office to better and to and frankly to keep himself in power this is do you think that that was just a symptom of you know him or their his administration coming after was a symptom of or an example of what he did just daily, what that administration did daily to silence critics to make sure that they stayed in power? Absolutely. I mean, he was, he was operating the uh, White House like a crime boss. If you ever watch a couple of these uh, movies like Scarface, I mean, nothing was uh, sacred. Anything to remain in power, whatever it takes. And he was able to get people around him because of the power of the presidency, not him, but the power that's in that office and what comes with it. And when his own attorney general tell him no and quits, uh, after it's obvious that this guy is uh, a thug, he has no respect for the rule of law. He has no respect for the Constitution. And it's all about him wanting to impose his will on the entire American government. We were like sheep going along with, well, this is the office of the president. And the fact that he fires the secretary of defense and put a person in there that's not up to uh, the job, but he does what he's told. And then he infiltrated the Pentagon with many of his political operatives was we were in grave danger by the time 1-6 happened. And the incident that's happened prior to it, that this president was hell-bent on staying in power and no rule, no law was beyond him breaking. And he was able to, through his propaganda, to get people to willingly follow him. The orders of the president of the United States. That's in our oath. I have to, I mean, I could go on forever with this. And I know our time is coming to an end here, sir. So I want to ask you, my last question to you is, you know, clearly you have a lot to say. Um, are you going to, have you been asked? Um, and would you accept, uh, you know, sort of a position being involved in, in changing and addressing, uh, you know, the shortcomings here? Is this something 
that the Biden administration has looked to you. I mean, you were part of it, you know, the investigation. Um, but is that something you, you're planning to continue to contribute to? Well, as a citizen, no, I don't want no federal job. Uh-uh. And I want no political office. <laughs> uh, when you uh, take a federal job, you're constrained by lawyers and public affairs officers. But I've seen that. I don't want that. Uh, wouldn't take it if I was offered. Wouldn't run for office even now if people want me to run for governor. I'm not doing it. Uh, I've served 37 years, three months and three days. Uh, I'm not doing that. But I think the little voice I have with about 130,000 Twitter followers uh, and a few thousand Facebook followers, that's where I express my opinions. And I could be wrong, but I think the premonition I had shortly after 1-6, before I got appointed to go do the investigation at the Capitol, uh, has proved me out that the White House was more than complicit. They were part of the plan to overthrow the government. Well, sir, I, I do hope, you know, I think we appreciate your candor, of course, your service and your continued service to speak out and share that opinion, because I think it's important. I, you know, I will say for those, those who may be, who are listening, who don't know, you know, I, I have spoken to quite a few retired uh, flag officers, that means admirals and generals, and um, they express opinions that are surprisingly, perhaps, very similar to Lieutenant General Honore, yet the one thing that I think, sir, not I think, I know separates you from them, is that they're not willing to speak out, and I think that what we saw yesterday requires people from both sides of the aisle, you know, people that I may not agree with to say, you know, I took a duty and I swore an oath to the, defend the Constitution from foreign and domestic um, and they should be speaking out. And it's very hard for, I think, a lot of Americans to understand the seriousness of just how close we came to something really much more significant than it even was. And it was a significant event without people like you speaking out. So, sir, I, I appreciate your candor. I well, appreciate you speaking out. It's important. Let me make a comment on that. A lot of my colleagues leave and they go to work for defense contractors. So they will not, in many cases, speak out because those defense contractors are tied back to defense contracts. That's a very good point. That's not all, but many. You know, you're right. You're right. It's still, I still think, sir, it's worth acknowledging you speak out as, as you told us at not without personal risk to yourself. I mean, you, you had an IG investigation. And so I understand that people, you know, would, look, speaking out and doing the right thing is not consequence free. It's just the reality of life. And I understand, I respect that, you know, that they have jobs and they don't want to lose those jobs. But, you know, I, I don't know, sometimes there's something that I like to think duty and honor and commitment, like these are things that should, maybe it's naive, uh, should supersede that. And, you know, it's important to have, I think, I think, you know, you generals and admirals and all of us try not to be in many cases political. And I think it's hard in a case like this, it's hard to not. Uh, it's not just uh, criticizing Trump and his administration. I've criticized you. Sure. Biden administration for the de-escalation doctrine in supporting Ukraine. They were too damn slow. Uh, Word about the doctrine of de-escalating. And 60 days ago, uh, I yelled at the White House on Twitter and the, and the Pentagon to put multiple launch rockets and radars and long-range drones in Ukraine. 60 days later, decide they're going to send four. <laughs> when they sent four weapon systems, that is the stupidest shit I've ever seen. I've <laughs> well, said that publicly. So when I, you see stupid, you got to call it out. When you see stupid, you got to call it out. It, it sounds like a simple idea, sir, but uh, I know you're, you're a modest man, but it takes, I, I think it takes a level of bravery um, to speak out when you say something is wrong, even if it is, you know, whether it's Biden or Trump. There are a lot of people, you know, sir, who at your level who just don't do that. They just, they say stupid, they see stupid. They rather not say anything. They'd rather just 
kind of put their head down and pretend they didn't see it because they don't want it to blow back yeah. in their face. So sure talking, that, when Biden was talking about uh, Afghanistan, I said, the general's got to be telling him now is not the time to do that in August. You don't do that in August. We had 2,500 troops basically stabilizing things. Don't do it in August. The generals knew. I mean, we knew sure. from the site before that, you know, if you're going to do something like this, make sure everything is set. And I don't think he listened to him. And it's come out yeah. in, in like ways he didn't listen to him. He was hell-bent on doing it. That was stupid as shit. But, but you know, this is, this is the difference. And I think you're right. It's important for a democracy to have um, opposing views and debate and in some kind of times, you know, the hot debate, right? Like intense debate. That's, that's, I think that's a beautiful thing about democracy. It's important. And dissenting views are always, honestly, they make the other viewpoint stronger. So I think it's important. But, but I just want to say there's a difference, sir, between saying that President Biden did something that we disagree with and, and could have been done better and there, versus what Trump did. Trump, Trump in right. my opinion, is, you know, he, I don't doubt for a second, sir, that while I disagree with, and, so, and I, I'm with you, I disagree with some of Biden's actions and the current administration's actions, right. but I don't think that they're coming from a place of Biden no. is trying to enrich himself or he's trying to do this for, I believe he thinks he's doing the right thing for the country. I disagree that he is, but I that's support, his motivation. I support the basic concepts he worked on. Uh, I support every president. <laughs> And, you know, with a due amount of respect for Trump until he started doing crazy shit, like going to Puerto Rico and throwing toilet paper and saying all kind of crazy shit. I mean, you give due uh, respect to the president of the United States. But it was obvious over time that this guy was on a fast track to destroying the democracy by those people he had placed in the Pentagon. Uh, by his action, wanting to take down NATO. I mean, this guy was not acting on uh, what I saw in the central government serving up there on the Joint Chiefs of Staff and going to National Security Council meetings that he was directing the country in the wrong direction and it was all self-serving to protect himself in power. That's the assessment and I can't say things like that if I got government contracts, which I don't. I understand. Uh, and has this affected me to a degree? I do motivational speaking and know there are speeches that I've lost because people have said I've taken a position on the mega movement and I don't, I have good friends who are Republicans. Uh, and uh, we don't talk about this, <laughs> just avoid the topic, but it's not all Republicans. It's the mega movement inside the Republican Party. I mean, I adored the hell out of George Bush, and people say, well, why did you do that? And I said, because overall, I think he had good intentions, and things don't always work out the way they want to work out. They're dealing with the world, and not just one event, but I still hold them in highest respect as well as Bill Clinton. And they were flawed men too. But I don't think the intentions was to overthrow the government. And it was clear Trump's intention is to overthrow the government and remain in power. You know, maybe we should end on a high note, sir. And, I, and here's, here's my, last, my last question to you. I mean, you served this nation in over three decades. Um, do you feel today, as shocking as yesterday was, and as watching January 6th, you know, was, I mean, do you think that this is still a country with a democracy and an ideal that is worth committing to, that is worth, you know, young women and men to wear our nation's cloth and defend? Absolutely. Beyond a figure of a doubt. And that's why I have to really temper what I say, because we don't want the troops to lose faith in that constitution and that oath that they took that we do follow orders of the president regardless of what his political favor we cannot ever put at risk that 
we're going to study whether we're going to do this order or do this deployment or not based on who's the president. That, that is why uh, comments have to be tempered in a way not to, for the troop to lose faith in and the allegiance to their oath. The support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and to obey the orders of the President of the United States and the officers uh, above me. Words to that effect. We cannot lose faith with that. And by and large, our troops have not let us down in the 240 some years that we've been doing this. Thanks once again to retired Lieutenant General Andre for joining us. You can connect with him on Twitter at LTG Russell Honore, H-O-N-O-R-E. If you like this episode of Declassified, we'd love if you could subscribe and leave us a five-star review. As a new show, it really helps us grow and make sure that we can bring the content that you want to hear. As always, I'm Naveed Jamali for Newsweek. Newsweek.